Hi, I'm Melanie. And I'm Justin. And we're a couple of counselors. Welcome back to the podcast. Yes, welcome. Um, it's been two weeks since our last podcast, which has uh, been rare. We've been trying to do about one a week. Yeah. Um, and that's our plan moving forward weekly still. Yes. Yeah, I don't know. Well, actually, that would be a fib to say I don't know what happened. Um, yeah. You going to tell them? Or? <laughs> <laughs> i just been feeling, well, I, Whitney actually helped with this the other day. And when we were talking about it, it made sense to me. Because I had had some like, oh, not tonight. I want to do one tonight. And I think that part of it is it feels vulnerable to mm-hmm. do this. And a lot of nights the kids go to bed. I'm like, I don't want to be vulnerable. Like, I, you know what I mean? So and I think that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. For me in terms of when I uh, experience aversion to doing one. Mm. And for those of you who don't know, Whitney, she's a... Uh, dear friend and LCSW. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm excited about tonight because I'm thinking we can start on a topic that is you know we could talk about forever. So I don't know how much we'll get to tonight and where we'll go. But um, just thinking about talking about the idea of psychological trauma, and I'm saying psychological trauma because I think in the vernacular today, it is often just trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was thinking the other night that, you know, when I'm at the dentist, I hear them talk about trauma in my mouth. And, you know, like a lot of other fields have a different conception of what trauma is, you know, trauma to the body. Yeah. Um, And obviously we'll talk about how the body plays a role here, but but I think what we want to talk about is psychological trauma. Yeah. And a definition of trauma that I have come to adopt is from Gabor Matei, who I've quoted at another time. Um, But basically, he says trauma is what happens inside of us as a result of what happens to us. Yeah. And why I like that is it talks about the internal experience of it, as well as um, that this is about what happened to us. And a variety of people can all experience the same event mm-hmm. and some will walk away with a more prolonged set of symptoms than mm-hmm. others. And yeah. maybe we'll get into why that could be, but um, it's not necessarily event specific in the way that, okay, if you experience this one thing, you definitely had trauma because yeah. it may or may not show up that way to a person. For sure. And it may not be one thing it might be several things that compound over time yes which yeah which generally speaking we refer to as complex trauma when there's a variety Mm -hmm. of them um yeah i think there's a few really important things you just hit on there one is we'll talk about just very generally the changes that take place in terms of the autonomic nervous system and in terms of cognition the way one comes to see themselves and see the world those changes to your point mel are necessary for there to be psychological trauma. If there's no changes, then the event wasn't traumatizing. But they're also, like you said, they're not event-specific. So two people can experience the exact same thing, and one of them can have those prolonged changes in cognition or in the sensitization of the nervous system, which we'll talk more about, um, and somebody else might not. And I think we should talk a little bit about some factors that lead to that. Let's do it. Um, And... 
I think that we should harp on that for one second because that's such an important thing because you and I both know the extent to which people experience shame around their symptoms or the things that have happened to them. So to say that it's very important uh, to recognize that people respond differently to different events is really important. Mm. Right, because sometimes that gets internalized as... um, why why am I more affected mm-hmm. than other people? Or yep. why am I not as affected as other people? Right. <laughs> really, there's just this judgment and self-evaluation of how we process things. Exactly, yeah. So I wanted to tell a personal story because I think that it hits on a lot of the things we just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very instructive for me in understanding how this works at an experiential level because it was... I think I was in grad school or had just just started grad school or pre-grad school. So suffice to say, I had really no, very little understanding about psychological trauma when this happened. So it was interesting to, like I said, to experience it. So I'm going to just tell this story, um, you know, relatively briefly. But so I'm at one of my first jobs in the field um, and it's a residential setting. So, you know, I get to know the folks fairly well and... um, you know, I'm in their apartments relatively frequently for a variety of reasons. And a coworker and I walked in on a man who was dying. Um, we didn't know why, but he was um, completely undressed and had hit his head and was not in a good way. Um, and we called the emergency services and he, uh, I think he ended up dying a few days later. Um, but we, you know, had heard some sounds and, and let ourselves in and, and saw that. Um, and, you know, we were close with this, with this person, someone we'd worked with. So suffice to say, it was a very disturbing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that I want to say, there's a few things actually, but I want to start with the, the experience I had that was really interesting to me. Is... I'm going to skip ahead to about three days later. I think, like I, like I said, he had passed in the, in the, in the uh, days in between. So a few days later, I was going to clean out his apartment. And I remember very specifically saying to myself, you haven't been in that apartment since. Mm. It's going to be difficult. You cared about this man and he just passed and you had seen him in his you know, in that moment and it was really upsetting. I just did like a pep talk. Like, yeah. this is going to be hard. And I walked into the room and within 30 seconds, I was like trembling and starting to cry. And I was with coworkers. So I just let myself out and went out back and started to cry. And I want to say I was in grad school and had like a very, um, like I said, maybe like minimal understanding. Like on, on some level, I understood that the trauma could be kind of distinct from, you know, that, that cognitive part, the part that you can talk out of it. Mm-hmm. But I had in that, like I said, very little knowledge, but I had a visceral experience in that moment of the way in which trauma embeds in a part of the brain that we don't have access to, mm. um, you know, because I quite literally was giving myself like a prefrontal cortex pep talk. Yeah. Like these are all the things that you're likely to experience and think, and it's going to be hard. And then like, my body was just like, I don't care. <laughs> you right. Know what so I mean? you had all the preparation. Yeah. And then no access. Exactly. No, exactly. No access whatsoever. 
Um, yeah. Which felt a little destabilizing because, like I said, I didn't have a solid understanding mm-hmm. of exactly what was happening. So I was like, yikes, like this is very intense that this just happened to me without my consent, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> you and know? Are you comfortable if I ask a few probing questions? Because yeah. I think it would be helpful for listeners to have some context around your level of exposure to trauma prior. Yeah, so what I, that's one of the things I want to talk about, actually, in relation to the way that this impacts people. Mm-hmm. Because I want to, I thought about this before doing this, and I want to be very, very vague. Just, you know, I mean, this was many, many years ago, but sure. just because I don't, you know. Anyway, suffice to say that there was another person who experienced an identical thing to me. And you mean the coworker that the was coworker with you that at was the with time? Me, saw the exact yep. same thing, you know, um, had a, a roughly identical experience, and it was very interesting. We had different responses. Mm-hmm. We had very similar responses in the ensuing days, mm. and from what I understand, theirs lasted longer, mm. significantly longer. I think, and I say that because I think it's relevant to what it's potentially relevant to what you were saying. So, here we're going to touch on like a few factors, right? One of them is that something that makes you susceptible to an event um, lasting with you is previous trauma. I mean, mm-hmm. that's one thing. And I don't know that this coworker had that, but I know that I did not. I, I yeah. would say that I you know, grew up, roughly speaking, um, without any events that I would consider psychologically traumatic. So I, I yeah. had a resilient nervous system, I would say. That's one thing. Yep. Um, and again, I don't know anything about my coworker had. I'm just saying that th- that's a relevant factor for whether or not an experience will impact you in an enduring mm-hmm. way. Um, the other thing that's very relevant, and you know, there's there's good research about this, is the support you receive directly after the event. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, certainly in this case, um, again, it was the same. It was, you know, our su- our supervisor coming quickly and. Um, I remember feeling supported. I think we both did. And we checked in with each other in the following week. Um, so yeah, so certainly I don't, all I know is that it stayed with my coworker longer and I don't know in exactly what ways that showed up, obviously. Um, but I think that's just relevant to talk about because they're the two factors that are, I'm sure there's more, but that are coming to my mind in terms of what's, what's relevant in terms of how someone will process an experience is their previous exposure to not only a quote-unquote traumatic event, but sometimes a similar event, right? Because it can mm. create a trigger or if yep. they have a sensitized nervous system for any other reason. And then the support that you receive directly following, if it's a single incident event, mm. really any event. But in that case, there's a lot of research about, you know, 150 people experience a traumatic event and the support that they get directly after by loved ones. Mm-hmm. This is particularly irrelevant relevant to if you think about sexual assault survivors Mm -hmm. because so often the story is not only not support but the exact opposite not believing right so sure any um when i my background is in women and gender studies and talking a lot about violence that occurs uh, in the public sphere versus the private sphere and how public sphere violence you're walking down the street and you get assaulted um versus you're in your home and you get assaulted by someone that you love um 
the way our society is structured to respond to that is very different mm. and including what gets support and attention, what are the pathways to have those kinds of conversations to protect yourself for, you know, if you wanted to look at the legal system, yeah. there's a very clear way outside of the home to navigate that and a very convoluted, complicated, difficult way to navigate that inside the home yeah. for a variety of factors we could talk about at length. But yeah. um, it really struck me learning about that as someone that you know witnessed domestic violence as a kid, as someone that saw a lot of things happen in the home that we could say on paper is illegal. Um, yeah. But then knowing that the way that th that that was you know i don't know it not only experienced but not talked about afterwards yeah whereas if your car got stolen maybe most people in the neighborhood would know because they're looking for the car yeah right um and so there yeah. it just you know there's so many factors but i think that private sphere versus public sphere is a huge that helped me conceptualize that. that's why i'm repeating it now um yeah. and tremendously impacts how what systems are set up for support and the guilt and shame around it there's nobody yeah. questioning were you walking in a vulnerable way if you get physically assaulted yeah right yeah of course it strikes me as you break it down like that i like that the public first private that the majority of crimes of course occur in the private sphere mm -hmm. so it's unfortunate that to your point we're kind of set up as a society to best handle and support an area where less of this is happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you're much more likely to be assaulted, be it sexually or in any other way, yeah. by someone you know than you are out on the street. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it also makes me think a little bit, I guess I just want to give a plug for the Trauma and Recovery book by Judith Herman, which is an older book, but still really helpful because she talks a lot about how in order to support people in dealing with psychological trauma, you have to have a, a society that is willing to look at it mm -hmm. and she speaks beautifully about how it's the essence of trauma for people to just not want to look at it you know it's part of the reason that um that victim blaming is so pervasive another you know? another aspect of victim blaming is we want to believe we're safe yeah and it's a lot more psychologically convenient to believe that the other person just didn't follow the rules yeah and so long as i have rules i'll be safe yeah. Um, and so there is like we're incentivized to believe that the whatever harm was caused was done because the person didn't follow the rules. Mm -hmm. um, that is in no way in support of that. I'm just of course not yeah. recognizing that you know there's a paradigm shift that will need to happen for folks to see some of this differently and often. Um, it's at the detriment of the people experiencing trauma and abuse Yeah, that it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that to your point, obviously that's not a, uh, that's nothing more than a potential explanation, but that was really helpful when I first, under, when I first understood that, or at least came to think of that because victim blaming can seem so cruel and mm -hmm. I mean, it is, it is and, yeah. and kind of just irrational you know, if somebody is sexually assaulted and, you know, the cliche of w what were they wearing? Were they drinking? Like, it's just like so yeah. terrible. But to your point, both men and women engage in it. And when women are doing it, especially I'm thinking to myself, they get to, they get to separate. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. If you did something wrong, to your point, if you didn't follow the rules, yeah. then I get to say, well, that wouldn't happen to me because I do. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not helpful at all, but it makes some sense in terms of how it's protective of people to to blame the victim's individual actions. It also shows why oh, one of the many reasons why there is a not there's not adequate support. Yeah. Because that would require people recognizing that it's not about following a set of rules. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's another barrier. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, the I think your point about when you talk about public and private, talking about the systems that are in place to support people who've experienced trauma is really important. Yep. And I think part of the reason that you and I wanted to talk about this is that trauma is, I don't know, probably more kind of in the culture right now as a word and as a concept, psychological mm-hmm. trauma, than it's probably ever been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, And both of us spend our days supporting people who have mostly experienced developmental trauma. Yeah. And this I and by that I mean difficult experiences that have happened whether it or things that have not happened that really needed to happen. Yeah. And their absence results in neglect um within childhood. Yeah. And how narratives and concepts beliefs about ourselves are often established by the time we're you know before we finish middle school and how important it is to either i kind of talk about it as like updating the software of when Mm. we're an adult when things have been you know established out of survival in childhood um, that are no longer serving us in adulthood. That's a lot of the work that I do with folks is being yeah. able to identify like what, what I'm operating, using an operating system that's you know, 20 years old, 30 years old, yeah. um, and much has changed. And I, it's hard to rewire, but possible to rewire the nervous system. I was having a conversation with a client today and just about this idea of it's hard to stop running and when we look around and be like we got to the place we were running to and I still don't want to stop running because I'm afraid uh, I have that same urgency I had at age five or age eight to get as far away from whatever as possible to establish my own independence not rely on anybody else let's say and the person I was talking to has that now and her nervous system is still pushing her to keep changing things, keep pursuing, keep looking for, you know, we all have a negativity bias. It's hardwired, but it's this like, what am I missing? What am I needing to do now? Yeah. Um, and a lot of difficulty resting, enjoying being present with, because mm-hmm. it's that like pushing and the momentum to keep running. Um, yeah. And so being able to acknowledge, okay, this is the software we're trying to update. Um, I can give other analogies besides software, but if we're any tech adverse people out there, but (laughs) the idea of, okay, these things were established. These patterns are stress responses, survival responses, trauma responses. I sometimes use those interchangeably. We could go into the details of why those are slightly different, but the idea of, okay, um, when these 
patterns happen. No, I know we, we all are pretty like able to wrap our head around single instant trauma. Okay. But I'm talking about things that repetitively happened or did not happen. And then things that happen within us as a result of that. And so being able to really look and draw a line from then to now as to how it's impacting the day to day and, um, how our body's still showing up as, as if it's happening. Yeah, there's so much in what you just said. And this is part of my concern, right, about how, how enormous this topic is. So is. I'm inclined, if it's okay with you, yeah, to pull back a little and get a little more granular about what actually happens inside you to, yeah, yeah. to Gabor Matei's thing and kind of end there because developmental trauma is maybe something we should talk about for like a whole podcast. Cause yeah, it's, next yeah. time we'll be deeper dive into developmental trauma. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I think I, I so, you know the one of the gurus of trauma treatment, Bessel van der Kolk, and a bunch of his colleagues, and I think it was two thousand twelve, tried to get a developmental trauma diagnosis in the DSM, mm-hmm. and they were denied for uh, reasons that you know strike me as not very sound. Um, but the point is, they did that because of what yeah. you're saying, which is it's extremely pervasive sure. in a way that you know it's much rarer to have these single incidents, uh, traumas out in the world than it is for people who just have things that happened to them in childhood or to your point, things that did not happen. So um, what happens inside us? Give, give yeah. us a little, um, you know, yeah, I want to, I want to try to do a little bit of a potted version. Obviously. Um, I actually like Judith Herman's conception. It's her, um, She's like three pillars that I think cover kind of all this, all the symptoms um, pretty well. So the three pillars that she has are hyperarousal, constriction, and intrusion. So these are three things that, that can happen to you as a result of traumatic experiences. And just briefly, they are hyperarousal is... Basically, the nerve, the sensitization of the nervous system, so that it's on the lookout for danger. And mm-hmm. to what you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. in people who say that they have trouble settling, you know, they're kind of they have this hyper vigilance about them where they're checking. They're always, and this doesn't have to be physical safety; it can be, but it's often more in social settings. They're constantly checking about whether or not they're okay. You know, am I accepted here? Am mm-hmm. I doing good enough? So there's a t- there's a sense there's a way in which you're kind of on edge. That's the hyperarousal piece. Some anxiety, some anger, extra energy in the nervous system. Mm-hmm. Upregulated out of the window of tolerance. If exactly. you remember that in the previous podcast, but yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and behaviorally, that manifests in panic attacks or rage outbursts, racing um, thoughts, racing thoughts. Yeah, cognitively. Mm-hmm. Um, the constriction part. I tend to think of uh, internally as more of a, a dive in terms of um, like a, a numbness, a kind of like clenching, a kind of shutdown in the body. So this is, again, the bottom of the window. It's mm-hmm. constricting energy, basically. So it's when you become more numb, more shut out, more dissociated. Mm-hmm. But in terms of diagnostically for, you know, like PTSD, Constriction is about avoidance, which is a number mm-hmm. one. Um, the, your actual life becomes constricted behaviorally. Yeah. So there's the internal constriction that can occur. And then there's also the constriction of your life. So then a number, 
probably the number one thing that happens to people when they've experienced a traumatic event is they avoid uh, things in their life that will that could trigger that. Right. And that, that avoidance is constrictive. Right. So, you know, if you were attacked by a dog as a kid, yeah. single instance, and now you don't want to walk down the street without a person with you or without, you know, something yeah. like, or you don't want to go down a certain road yeah. or if you move to a place and the neighbors have a dog and you're like, I'm not sure I can live here. It just, yeah. it can it can spread in a variety of circumstances. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just had a client the other day who had an experience happen at a certain place and he was just talking about going out of his way to not have to drive by it. Yep. You know, and it's easy to see to your point how those things could become pretty debilitating if your life gets smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. So the avoidance piece is the constriction part largely. Um, And then the last piece is maybe what people think of more kind of classically, the intrusion, which tends to happen either in the forms of nightmares for people um, or in intrusive thoughts or what people might commonly understand as flashbacks. So the the classic example is the war veteran who hears a car backfire and he's on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so the behavioral response is I'm back in a war zone. Mm -hmm. The the nervous system response is you are in danger. And it all happens in a second, which that quick, response which we would call a trigger is the backfiring Mm -hmm. the behavioral response is the whatever he does drops to the ground um and the the internal experience that causes that quick reaction is a hyper aroused response as a product of a sensitized nervous system yep so that's kind of like tying all those things together i don't know this is a lot of clinical words but I, i also you know trying to make it somewhat accessible for people to understand roughly what happens yeah. I don't know what, if you want to add anything or what you think about that. You know, I think it's important because it it teases it out to be able to look at these three major categories. Yeah. Um, and to recognize that there is a pattern to how it shows up inside of people. Um, and the duration of how long that happens matters because most people, most of the time can have a larger reaction immediately following an event. And then within a few days, a few weeks, a few months, that um, their ability to process and digest that experience, break it down into smaller pieces, keep what's valuable, leave the rest, gets uh, put in a way that has time orientation. And what I mean when I say that, for those listening, is this idea of like, I my body understands that it happened in the past. Mm-hmm. It's no longer happening. I'm not worried it's going to happen again. Yeah. But you can see, and when we talk about developmental trauma, why this gets very complicated if yeah. it isn't in the past and it is happening again. Yeah. Um, but for purposes of this particular podcast, being able yeah. to see how there might have been times in your life where you experienced something that's really challenging and for a small period of time you had intrusion you had constriction and you said oh hyper arousal yeah Yeah. i was like avoidance but no that's a constriction um but being able to see like how that process or that pattern of response um is common across experiences and then we tend to meet the folks and i'm one of those folks where i've had experiences that 
the symptoms endured for much longer than days or weeks or months. Mm-hmm. And that's um, when we look at functioning and the things that we assess clinically are yeah. important factors as well. Yeah, that's well said. And I mean, I think the example that I gave earlier is, is a perfect example of what you're describing because I did have that um, kind of intrusive response uh, of being triggered, you know, in a very obvious way, being back at the place that it happened and having, you know, what can only really be described as a, a trauma response in that moment. Mm-hmm. And then, but it didn't endure in any, in any way that impacted my functioning. One thing I didn't talk about that I just want to name is that there are a variety, specifically with people whose symptoms endure, variety of cognitive changes that happen too, right? Like entire, mm-hmm. and this is often more frequent with developmental or complex trauma, but entire schemas and ideas about the self and the world mm-hmm. can change as a result of trauma, you know? Here yeah. we're talking about like shame narratives or the world isn't safe or, you know. Yeah. Like so what we come to believe about ourselves and others. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because we didn't, yeah, in the definition, I didn't mention cognition as much, but obviously that can really be shaped by traumatic events. Right? Yeah. So you got a intro yeah. to some trauma conversations here. And I think developmental trauma will be the next step in the conversation and we'll just continue to build because this is an area we have a lot of passion and experience and you know I don't I hesitate to ever say expertise but um experience with yeah um helping others well yeah and I appreciate that you know I think it's important to always be mindful of um you know the the limits of what we know and obviously the things we don't know but it is yeah. fair to say that you and I deal in s- the impacts of psychological trauma almost all day every day so for our work so there is something to be said I yes think. um and I think it's important because I think again it's it's in the societal vernacular in a way that is healthy and important and also in a way that I could imagine being a problem if people are getting incorrect information about mm-hmm. what trauma is so i you know and that's not to say that we're here we are to give all the correct information but just to no. start to we're start to the have problem. conversations yeah to start um, the conversation and to unpack what what we've seen you know the concept behind this podcast is taking insights from the clinical couch to our living room couch and that's where we are right now so thank you for joining us and if you have feedback um comments you can find us on instagram at a couple of counselors we'll jump back into our weekly posting and see you next time thank you thanks